Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and how the heat death of the universe was supposed to occur billions of years into the future, and instead it's happening this afternoon. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, a runner just as matchless as Achilles, and on the whole, a good deal less moody. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we want to thank everybody for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in pectize. Ratings actually really do matter, as they do each and every week. We make this plea for you to leave us ratings and stars and reviews, so please do all of that on iTunes or whatever platform you choose to listen to us on, but we would greatly appreciate if you leave us a couple of reviews. Um, and with that, Frank, who's joining us today? So, in just a little bit, we'll be joined by a man who is quickly becoming a legend in Southern California campaign finance transparency, our friend and fellow Truman Project member, Matt Strabone. Matt is running for uh, San Diego County Assessor, uh, San Diego County Assessor, Recorder, and Clerk. Uh, that's one office. Uh, and he's a he's a very smart dude. Uh, he's a nonprofit and ethics attorney. Uh, he's worked for charities, nonprofits, uh, public officials. Uh, he's also extremely good on campaign finance reform. Uh, he's very sharp mind. We're going to talk to him about some of that. Uh, and he is uh, also on the uh, committee, Holiday Bowl committee. And so you'll have a chance to hear about uh, some some of the America's college football fine bowl tradition. So we're going to be talking to uh, Matt Strabone here in a little bit. Wouldn't it be but, awesome if there was actually three different offices he was running for, like Rand Paul running for president and senator? Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this this would usher in a new era of just, you know, if you could raise enough money, just standing for everything. Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah, this is exactly right. And just, you know, like a, you know, it's, it's you know, like spread betting across a college, a college basketball pool. Yeah, especially you know? if it's like spe- specific state offices. Like if you're running for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, your local county executive, local county school board, co- uh, state senate, state legislature. Sure. Like you just need to run commercials about how awesome you are. You don't have to say what, like what vote, which office to vote for. (laughs) Frank Spring should do something. Yeah. (laughs) Elect, elect Frank, elect Frank Spring. Don't tell them for what. That's exactly right. (laughs) It doesn't matter for what, but you need him in there. You've got to get him in there. He's the man you need. For what we're not clear, like, oh, man, hey, I got, uh, you know, I got state auditor. I'm totally unqualified for it, but sure. That sounds awesome. (laughs) I will audit this place into a bold new century. Excellent. That's my acceptance speech as I become state auditor of the uh, great state of wherever I happen to be standing at that moment. (laughs) So before I launch my campaign for everything under the sun, again, Matt is not doing that. Matt is standing for one condensed office. Uh, Before we launch my camp, before I launch all of my various campaigns at the same time in hopes that I get one of them. um, Well, there are a number of things that we are really looking forward to not talking about today. So uh, what are we not talking about today? I think to start, we need to talk about uh, Donald J. Trump's interview at the New York Times yesterday, an interview that he went into uh, having not told any staff members and not told his attorneys that he was going to be doing a lengthy on-the-record interview with the New York Times and was only accompanied by Hope Hicks. We encourage every one of you who is uh, in a position of any sensitivity or importance uh, to conduct yourself in exactly this manner. Give lengthy on-the-record interviews with major news outlets without telling anyone on your communications or legal team. Do it. You know, grasp the cup of life, people, and quaff till you're breathless. Nothing can stop you. 
Yeah, don't do any preparation. It definitely won't come across that you're not that you didn't do any preparation. And you know, perhaps your fans will appreciate that you're being so honest, or perhaps they'll be offended that you are dealing with the failing New York Times that you lambast on a daily basis. It's hard to say which one they'll actually enjoy more. But nothing can go wrong. We want to emphasize that. And there is certainly no danger whatsoever that uh, your lack of preparation, uh, either personal and letting your staff help you, uh, would give anyone the impression that you were uh, suffering some kind of very serious uh, uh, neurological episode in the midst of the uh, interview. Yeah, there's a couple key graphs that I think uh, we won't do a dramatic reading because neither of us do a particularly good Trump imitation. But uh, there's one graph that I'm just staring at now uh, in which uh, Maggie Haberman, um, who at some level is actually Donald Trump's psychiatrist, we think, um, was asking about Mitch McConnell. And Trump said, yeah, it's been it's been a tough process for him. This health care is a tough deal. I said it from the beginning. Number one, you know. A lot of the papers were saying, actually, these guys couldn't believe it, how much I know about it. I know a lot about healthcare. Garbled. This is a very tough time for him. He actually may have said garbled, actually. This is a very <laughs> tough time for him, meaning McConnell, in a sense because of the importance, and I believe we get there. This is a very tough time for them, in a sense because of the importance, and I believe that it's garbled. That makes it a lot easier. God knows what he thought, what the garbled word was. It's a mess. One of the things you get out of <laughs> yes, this. Yes, it is. I think that, that, is, that is the one absolutely inarguable thing that came out of this. It is indeed a complete mess. One of the things you get out of this, you get major tax cuts and reform. And if you add what the people are going to save in the middle income brackets, if you add that to what they're saving with health care, this is like a windfall for the country, for the people. So I don't know. I thought it was a great meeting. I bet the numbers, I bet the real numbers four, but let's say six or eight and everyone's garbled. So statistically, that's a little dangerous. And, you know, you can just go to the New York Times website and pull up the transcript and oh, man, it's so you know, good. close your eyes and just put your finger down on something and start reading. And it will all be about that sensible. Oh, yeah. So there's a couple of things. Again, we're not going to do it. I mean, this is way too long for us to do the whole uh, do the whole thing. We're not going to get into all of it, but there are a couple of things that, so that was a wonderful, wonderful segment that I, uh, you know, it's to, tr to get at least adopt some Trumpian language. That was a, just a, 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 a tremendous segment that is getting more and more. And everyone's talking about how more and more that segment is getting. Yeah. People can't believe how much that segment's getting. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Um, no one knew that. That's literally, so literally unbelievable. Uh, okay. So here's the other bit that I wanted to, uh, a couple of other bits that we wanted to get in here. So this is Trump on a history lesson, <laughs> uh, and he's recounting a, a conversation he had with uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. And uh, so he's so, so this is Trump. Well, Napoleon finished a little bit bad, which is certainly one way of putting it. Well, Napoleon finished a little bit bad, but I, mean, I asked he had that, that whole island to himself. No, that's that's exactly that's exa <laughs> yeah, how many of you have been given your own private island with an ancient tortoise? Like, come on now, like that. Actually, that's that's not a little bit bad. That's awesome. Okay, well, Napoleon finished a little bit bad. Eh, arguable. Napoleon finished a little bit bad, but I asked that. So I asked the president. So what about Napoleon? Oh my God! The image of Trump just be like, "Hey, hey, Emmanuel, what about Napoleon?" Huh? So I asked the president, "So what about Napoleon?" He said, "No, no, no. What he did was incredible. He designed Paris, garbled, the street grid, the way they work, you know, the spokes. He did so many things even beyond. And his one problem is he didn't go to Russia that night because he had extracurricular activities, and they froze to death. How many times has Russia been saved by the weather, garbled?" 
I love this this paragraph so much. I, I want to build a monument to it on the spokes that Napoleon apparently designed himself. It's possible that he was that. I mean, it just this is so far outside of the realm of possibility for a conversation that he might have had with the president of France. It just it fills me with joy and delight. Yeah. This man exists in his own private in his own private kingdom in his mind, uh, and and we should just be in awe of him. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter that Paris was around for what a thousand years before Napoleon, or if not more. I think what he might be talking about is that Napoleon the Third uh, commissioned a substantial uh, reinvestment in. Uh, in Paris, in Paris's in, in uh, Paris's infrastructure, which included uh, roads and, and monuments and some of the and bridgeways and so forth, um, Napoleon, which that is of course a different Napoleon, uh, but nonetheless, it's possible that 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 you know Napoleon the Third could have somehow gotten conflated with Napoleon because of course Donald Trump is because although there are in fact Donald Trump there is another Donald Trump there's Donald Trump Jr. Uh, because Donald Trump can't conceive of a world in which there is anything larger than himself, it is very possible that he is not able to conceive of a world in which there is more than one Napoleon. Also, because true. of course, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think it was, uh, was George Eugene Hausmann that he commissioned to uh, that Napoleon III commissioned to uh, to rebuild or redesign Paris. Anyway, so that is a wonderful that is a wonderful piece of uh, of rhetoric from our president. I say it's a great history lesson, uh, but also, and then he goes on to talk about Russia and how they fight in the cold, and it's just the way he describes it. It really, really, I mean, paints a, a picture, an inaccurate and insane picture, but a picture nonetheless. Yeah, but and uh, other you know, thing, pro tip for people: uh, don't bring up Hitler unprompted in an interview ever. It doesn't read well. Especially when you have the facts wrong, but you know, just don't because it, then it just seems like you got Hitler yeah, in your mind, that's, that's which, exactly isn't, right. which isn't a good thing. And the president is currently coming in for a certain amount of criticism uh, because he hmm, uh, he's gone off to, in the interview with the New York Times. He said uh, he's, he was talking about health insurance. And he said because basically you're saying basically from the moment the insurance. Uh, you're twelve. You're twenty-one years old. You start working. You're paying twelve dollars a year for insurance, and by the time you're seventy, you get a nice plan. That's a direct quote from the president of the United States. Yeah, you're twenty-one think, years old. You start working. You're paying twelve dollars a year for insurance, and by the time you're seventy, you get a nice plan. And what this what this tells us uh, is not that the president doesn't know how health insurance works, but that he is not. He doesn't know what health insurance is, or how money works. Or how money works. That's exactly right. I mean, this is. I mean, it's. It would be one thing if he didn't understand the ins and outs of how you get insurance, how insurance companies tranche their pools, how they assess risk, how they come up with their premiums, and so on and so forth. This man thinks health insurance is something other than what it actually is. You don't start paying for. You don't start paying very little for shit for shit plans when you're. Uh, you know, when you're young and by virtue of getting older, your plans get better. That's not actually how it works. Yeah, I think he's thinking about, you know, how buildings depreciate. <laughs> that's, exa- that's exactly right. What you're, what you're thinking about is a pension, son. You're thinking about a pension where when you're 21, you don't have one. And when you're 70, you do, or at least you did. Yeah. Oh, boy. I worry that he's somehow conflated Rand Paul's insanity of insurance costing a dollar a month. That might be where he came up with the twelve dollars. Like, but yeah, I might be giving him more credit than he deserves. But that's the only thing that like popped into my head because Rand Paul did say that insane thing in several interviews that insurance should cost no more than a dollar a month. 
Yeah, last year, it's that's possible. It's possible that he got that into his head, although apparently he did an interview with The Economist last year, Trump did, in which uh, he said that insurance costs $15. Yeah, yeah. The One of the other nice things that I really liked in this interview, um, I mean, the whole thing is just, if you think that we live in a strange time, just in an ordinary day of waking up and seeing just covers of newspapers without actually reading newspapers or just watching the evening news. You're not even watching the evening news, just seeing how, I don't know, Access Hollywood is covering the president. There are other times when you actually read interviews that he gives. And I would suggest this one, uh, a previous one with the New York Times, one with Reuters, and particularly the one with The Economist when he takes, when he takes credit for the phrase priming the pump. Uh, yes. as, as just yes. wonderful glimpses. That's that he invented that. I'm so glad you reminded me of that. Yeah. It, it's very <laughs> rare as a populace uh, of, a, of the world, because it is a global media market, to not have to read between the lines of what a president is saying. I mean, we have a clear view into his um, lackluster, potentially demented brain on a minute by minute manner in these interviews. And it is just baffling a, that he can just destroy grammar and syntax this badly. And B that he has the nuclear codes. I mean, you just wake up every morning, just damn it. This guy has the nuclear codes. So one of the things that I really liked is that he was, there's this whole thing that during the, this dinner, he was gesticulating wildly from one end of the table to the other end of the table, trying to get Putin's attention. And some of the movements he was making with his hands would be interpreted very differently on the street than I guess they are at a G20 table. But uh, he was evidently sat next, sat next to um, the wife of the Japanese uh, prime minister, Prime Minister Abe, um, who didn't speak to him the whole time, saying she didn't speak English. Which is why he ended up with Yeah, which is why he ended up with the Japanese translator that then he went down the table to go talk to good old Vlad without sure, of course. anybody from the American side. Yeah, of course. And uh, and which I have to say, like, there is so much that is delightful and, and troubling in all of that. But I have but honestly, like, this is just a good lesson. All of us, if we are seated next to uh, President Donald Trump, should just pretend not to speak English. Yeah. That's that's really your best recourse. Yeah. Although I, I, you know, I worry that he is one of those kinds of people. Like you know, when you're in a European, any country, in fact, that doesn't speak English, you can always tell the Americans because they're just speaking louder and slower. Louder and slower. I know. Which yeah, the idea. Now, now that I think about it, the idea of Donald Trump trying to explain to me how he invented the phrase "the better angels of our nature" <laughs> while speaking louder and slower <laughs> is just. I mean, that truly is the freshest hell of all. And using like hand symbols, like you know, flapping his hands like angels' wings. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly better. <laughs> Two thumbs up, yeah. flapping for angels. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm coming around on this again. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm going to see if I can pull this off. And the reason I'm going to, and of course, you know, for those of you who have not set eyes on me, I, I have, uh, I, I have red hair and I look. Uh, so, you know, it'd be, it would be an interesting challenge to see what I could, what language I could persuade him I spoke. Um, and I think my plan would be to try and persuade him that I spoke nothing but Irish Gaelic. <laughs> And that I require an Irish Gaelic translator. Oh, you don't have an Irish Gaelic translator. Oh, what a shame that is. Well, then I'm sorry. You're going to have to pantomime everything to me. Oh, that would be just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I think it's got. I think it's got potential. Yeah, that could work. That could speaking work. Of, speaking of people having awesome destructive power, uh, let's talk about the Iran deal. That is a solid transition, Frank. 
I thought you'd enjoy that. That's that's the kind of that's the kind of professional segue that you get on this deeply deeply amateur podcast. Yeah, perhaps someone will leave that. We'll talk about that transition in a review. Yes, that's that's exactly <laughs> it. Perhaps they will. Casper mattresses, good people. <laughs> Casper mattress. Get all your meals from Blue Apron. Uh, what else? Oh boy. Uh, please note we are being paid to say none of this, right. obviously. The destructive uh, because, power because of a poor mattress, which is why you should get Casper. <laughs> That's exactly, <laughs> this is precisely it. <laughs> the, the, Iran, the Iran deal was quite a thing, eh? But speaking of deals, <laughs> we're going to give the Pod Save America guys a run for their money. Stamps.com. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what was stamped? The Iran deal. <laughs> Do you know what stamped the Iran deal? <laughs> Speaking of awkward segues about the Stamp Act, <laughs> Stamps.com. <laughs> oh, man. This is awesome. This is very good. All right. For those of you who are still listening, we're now going to talk about the Iran deal. Yeah. Let's talk about the Iran deal. So uh, according to the the, um, the way it worked its way through Congress, the Menendez bill, the Menendez-Corker bill that was passed, the president has to certify to Congress every 90 days that Iran is um, in compliance with the nuclear deal, sticking to the very um, very clear black and white strictures of what the deal allows Iran to do and not do, and that the IAEA is verifying that they are in compliance with all, all those things. And contrary to what Donald Trump uh, campaigned on, saying he was going to tear the deal up on day one, uh, he has now certified it twice that Iran, well, this time, the first time they said they were in compliance, this time they didn't say they were in compliance, but didn't say they were not in compliance. They used some very interesting language to leave open the possibility for increasing sanctions um, on non-nuclear behavior, which the deal was created to allow. Um, and this was something that actually Hillary Clinton campaigned on doing, was tightening the sanctions on things like their ballistic missile program and some of their nefarious actions in the region, whether that's supporting uh, Assad or the Houthis in Yemen or Hezbollah or Hamas or any of the other things that they are deeply in, involved with. Um, so the State Department certified it. They put it out. This was after apparently a 50-minute uh, diatribe by the president saying that he didn't want to do it. Um, and all of the intel and generals and military folks saying, um, you kind of have to, dude. So that's where we're at with the Iran deal, in a nutshell. And it's been interesting to watch this administration struggle with how they're going to deal with this problem, because it is a problem, and listen to them say that, oh, we are going through a review process. Yeah. And and part of what's happening here, I think, again, this is the scope of the Iran deal. It is not the Iran has to be nice and behave itself forever deal. Uh, it is the it is a nuclear deal to prevent the Iranian government from acquiring a nuclear weapon. That is the a limited scope uh, of its you know of the of this particular arrangement. and and it it has been frustrating its political opponents have used that as a knock against it that, oh, well, they're still going to be able to do all of this stuff. Well, certainly. I mean, that's if you want them to stop doing that stuff, that's a separate deal. Uh, which is not to say that it could be made. I mean, that you know, and this is, I mean, the truth of it is there are elements within the Iranian government who have a profound interest in doing some really bad things, and they'll continue to do some really bad things. And there's not an, actually an awful lot that we can do about it. Uh, but the idea that we would, and this is, I think, one of this is part. This fits into a two-part challenge that the uh, that this administration has. The first is, I think. 
not dis, not unique to Trump, but he feels it more distinctly than almost anyone else, which is the desire to undo anything that Barack Obama did. Right. If, if Obama did it, this guy is going to undo it for the simple, you know, because that is the, that that logical loop. If, if Obama did it, it must be undone is internally tight enough for him just to carry for, to carry it forward as an article of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is clearly shared by other members of, of his administration. But I think he is more obsessed with that than anyone. Uh, but, you know, the other element is. Well, I mean, the, not, not it, to his defense on that, but Obama entered the White House in 08 with some of the same mentality. With a particular mandate to undo a lot of what W had done. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, on the other hand, I mean, it, you know, it's, and his. But those are policy what, differences. I think with the point that you're making, and I think you're right, is that with Trump, it's almost a monomaniacal psychosis. That's exactly right. It, it is personality driven. If Obama did it, it has, it has to be bad. That was not the way the Obama administration approached what W did. They, they differed quite strongly on how they viewed the world and, that, and what America's place in it was, how America should be governed, and so on and so forth. And so they did. They undid a lot of what uh, the uh, George W. Bush administration had done, and obviously governed quite governed quite differently. Although there are people on the left who would say the difference was not stark enough, uh, but. Well, there's also, you know, there's also the whole you campaign in poetry and govern in prose, and once you're in the once you're in the big chair, certain things become clear that you did not necessarily know the day before. Sure, exactly. All of that stuff is broad. All of that stuff is broadly true, uh, but again, yeah, the difference is this is personal. It wasn't yeah. like if W did it, it had to be undone. It yeah. was like a lot of what you know the Obama administration's foreign policy of don't do stupid shit, as it was once articulated, uh, was obviously in direct response to the to W's administration, which did a lot of stupid shit. Yep. Not including the great sort of defining event of the of the you know of, the, of this era of American history, which is the invasion of Iraq. So. There's that. That is one part of the strategic challenge this administration faces, particularly on foreign policy, is the president's obsession with undoing anything that that Obama did, regardless of whether it had any merit or not. The other part, and this is the part that that he and Pence and various other parts of that administration are really struggling with, is the fact that there are there are what are out in the world called sovereign countries, and you know by virtue of circumstance, you know there are other nations and the, there are other nation states in the world, and by virtue of circumstance, we can't make all of them do exactly what we want them to do at every given moment, and some of them are doing things that we really don't want them to do, and there's not a whole lot we can do about it. This administration is really, it seems to me, and particularly, you know, Trump himself, but Pence does this, like they're struggling with the idea that our power is not absolute and there really are limits of what we can do. You know, there, if there are elements within the Iranian government that want to do, that want to support bad people doing bad things, that want to do some bad things themselves, there's actually a limited amount of, there are a limited number of options uh, for, for amending and stopping that behavior. And there are even fewer good options. Right. Uh, and if you want, and if you think, and, and that is a much more positive and optimistic assessment than I can offer, uh, that I could offer for, than for a, a place like North Korea, for example, where, which is the land of bad options. There are actually no good options there, as far as I can tell. Uh, you know, the best one being a potential return to the agreed framework where we were essentially bribing North Korea not to build a nuclear bomb. Now, that's not a great situation to be in. It's better than the North Koreans developing one for themselves. But, you know, and the way that this administration has chosen to deal with, for example, North Korea is to have Mike Pence stand there looking like Leslie Nielsen, as you and I talked about with Laura, uh, with, uh, Laura Katzenberg. Uh, you know, just to to show the North Koreans our resolve, as if that makes a damn bit of difference. Yeah, and that's really as as I think the reality of that becomes more apparent to these people that you can't just you can't just you know 
wave an American flag and shake your fist at people and they, you know, they, you know, they cower and flee and do whatever you tell them to. I think they're, they're really starting to struggle with the reality of, okay, what do you do if that isn't the case? Right. I think some of this goes back to, you know, kind of the fascination with Reagan and the, and the, the fall of uh, Russia at the end of the cold war and that they looked at it as it was, you know, because, because, uh, Reagan went to uh, Berlin and said, tear down this wall. And they look at it as entirely a cult of personality thing as opposed to decades of American work, um, tons and tons of people involved in doing it, and Russia shooting themselves in the foot being the primary issue. With the Iranians in particular, I mean, again, North Korea, there are no good answers. With the Iranians, you're already hearing uh, very loud um, proponents of this idea of regime change, which is not a game the Americans should get in because they're not good at it and we haven't been good at it ever. And particularly in Iran, that is one of the reasons the Iranians hate us so much is because we tried that in the 50s. Um, On top of that, we've now lost essentially two years of uh, the 15-year horizon of really limiting Iran's um, nuclear potential. Uh, a lot of caps start coming off at, at the end of eight years, 10 years, and then 15 years with the overlying cap of they can never have a nuclear weapon. But again, this is all built on distrust. Um, so we've essentially lost two years as a globe uh, in the attempt to try to get Iran to, to stop their nefarious actions by other means. And one of the important things that I think that I know a lot of my friends in the pro-Israel community really... Um, lose sight of when they keep talking about, oh, we'll just increase the sanctions, is sanctions were ratcheted up over a period of 15 years, essentially. And through that whole time period, Iran continued to increase the number of centrifuges they had spinning. They built an entire, they built a plutonium reactor. They were increasing the amount of uh, low enriched uranium that they had, and that they had just sitting around. Um, and it was only once that the international sanctions came into effect that it actually made enough of a difference into their economy that they decided to come to the table and deal. And all the other countries, despite the um, uh, aspects of the joint comprehensive agreed whatever thingy it is, the Jacopa deal, that essentially allows the other countries to reinstate all the previous sanctions uh, without the Iranians having any say whatsoever, uh, meaning you don't have to go back to a deal, they just get put back in place regardless of what China and and Russia would want to do. You know, three against two can overdo it. Uh, Until you can get all the other countries on board with wanting to put the sanctions back in, it's not going to have the same impact. And it's not going to have the same impact because it needs to be a unified world opposing the Iranians trying to, you know, getting money into their economy because as opposed to North Korea, and this is why North Korea is such an intractable problem, the Iranians actually have something that the rest of the world wants, whether it's an educated populace or oil and gas. And North Korea has nothing to offer whatsoever, Uh, maybe coal potentially, but I don't even think they have that much of that. So unless you can get all the other countries lined up, which one of the reasons that the deal ended up taking place was because the other countries basically said, fuck it, we're not doing these sanctions anymore. It's hurting our economies now. Sure. And, and and the Iranians also have – Iran as a country has – I mean there, there are things that it has, mainly uh, energy, that the world wants. Yep. Uh, there are also things that the world has Consumers. that – yeah, that yeah, and it has yeah, it has consumers, and there are things that the yeah that the world wants that Iran has, uh, or sorry, that there are things that Iran that there are elements within Iran 
want that the world has to offer, right? And it's and that's mainly money, but that's other things as well. I mean, and this, you know, academic associations and and you know, which which seems kind of like a small point, but there are you know, first of all, Iran, like any country, is not a monolith. There are you know powerful elements within the Iranian government that would and within Iranian society that would like to see more relations with the outside world, a sort of a normalize a more normal relationship between Iran and the rest of the world. Now, there there are also elements that are reactionary and have no interest in that and are pretty hostile. Uh, but out of that, so that's why this is such a fraught issue, why you can make it, why, you know, deal-making here is so difficult and, you know, so complex and requires such a, you know, requires patience and all the other, basically, and is, it, you know, the challenge of Iran is, is, is uniquely uh, poor is or it would is is almost uniquely and perfectly designed to uh, to be uh, to apply to all of the weak spots of the Trump administration. Uh, so that's that's one part of it. But they, you know, and then you know, the challenge for North Korea is. Um, not only is there not a lot there that the world would necessarily uh, want, except from a kind of for a kind of you know values based assessment that you wouldn't want that many people, a kind of you know uh, you know on the conscience of the world you wouldn't want that many people living under a government like that, but also you know the way that that government has structured itself and the way that that society has developed, you know much you know more more monolithic, certainly more opaque, and there is much less interest in engagement with the broader world from the North Korean government. So, which makes it even harder to broker a deal of any kind. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this is I mean I sort of this you know this has gotten us a little bit off. This has gotten especially because we weren't going to talk about it. Especially since we weren't going to we were really looking forward to not talking about it. But this is the you know this is again the twin challenge for this administration is looking at wanting to undo anything that Obama did, and then and then assuming that the only reason that everything didn't go our way in the world was that you know the Obama administration was too weak or stupid to do it, and now right. they're actually looking at these intractable problems and realizing oh wait that actually is incredibly hard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot more to be said about the Iran deal, and maybe sometime soon we'll get one of our uh, very smart. Um, Iran deal expert friends on and we'll have a much longer conversation about it because I do think that there needs that it's it's well overdue time to have a much more honest conversation about it than I think either side was willing to do uh, while it was being negotiated and while the Senate and while the Senate was looking at it but moving on to the third thing we're not going to talk about is uh, health care. Yeah, and we're, we can just hit this one real fast. Everyone will have will have seen what's happened. Uh, the uh, ACA repeal, the AHCA, the repeal and replace has died. Uh, did not, you know, did not make it out. You know, did, we couldn't even get enough votes to get to the floor of the Senate where it would have been killed anyway. Uh, it is gone. Uh, it appears that the effort to simply repeal Obamacare without replacing it is also dead in the water. Uh, so for the time being. Uh, this the effort to repeal and replace Obamacare, just to repeal it, is over. Uh, so, just two quick points on that. The first is, it turns out Mitch McConnell is not a wizard. Uh, it's, you know, we, you know, we, Ellie and I prognosticate a lot. Uh, we and especially I have gotten enough things wrong that I will and and uh, you know I like to to uh, hope I like to think I can call myself on that pretty easy, evenly. Uh, so we're going to take a, a, a moment just to say. Throughout this process, we have been pushing back on the idea of Mitch McConnell as being ten feet tall and able to see through time, um, and and this validates that. Now, the, now McConnell, it would have. I don't know if there was a legislative genius out there who could have fixed this problem. Uh, the and you know the Republican Party will come back to this issue. They will come back to uh, to healthcare sooner or later because they can't not. Uh, but the central strategic problem that undid this effort remains, which is that is a deeply divided caucus. 
some of whom want the new legislation to be draconian on a, on a level that would you know you only, you have to go back to the kind of pre Roosevelt era to understand just how uh, how regressive uh, this uh, you know the, the what they would like to see from healthcare really is and then the other part of it are you know are, are slightly more moderate Republicans who are a little more interested in keeping their in keeping their jobs uh, and you know may or may not have some degree of social conscience uh, who can't support. Uh, you know, this kind of wholesale rollback roll of, you know, you know, pulling it, you know, getting people off their health insurance and so forth. Uh, and it would have taken, you know, you know, someone like Lyndon Johnson maybe to be able to bridge that gap. I'm not even sure that he could have done it in McConnell. But the point is, every throughout this whole discussion, there was this idea that, you know, there, you know, there, there was a constant drumbeat from mainly from inside the beltway of, oh, this is part of McConnell's, you know, 13, you know, step, 13 steps ahead of us, like, you know, third degree, you know, uh, three dimensional chess and every other thing. And that just proved not to be the case. This is this thing. We couldn't get this bill to the floor of the Senate, much less uh, through that, much less through the chamber. So yeah. that's, it's, it'll be, it'll be back at some point in some new God awful form, but the challenge will still remain. Yeah. I think the hope now, um, I think the sensible hope and sensible hope at this point will be that the ideal, the idea of what the Republicans were pushing as the replacement is dead. Um, and the idea of repealing it entirely is dead, which means that maybe now they will actually be able, they'll be willing to go talk and come up with fixes for the ACA, which everybody should remember is based off Romney care, which was based off of policy papers developed by the Heritage Foundation. Um, you know, this is a market-friendly solution to a healthcare problem that probably to actually be the most effective for the citizenry of this country should not be market-based. But if we're going to stick with a market-based, you got to work on both sides of the aisle to do it. And I hope, although I have very little faith that this will happen, uh, I would hope that now, A, Democrats would come out with a couple points of things that, hey, we should do these things. You guys can get on board with this. Let's shore up the markets right now. Um, and B, that the Republicans, uh, enough of them, and there, don't, there doesn't need to be very many of them to actually push that, th- that idea through. That's right. And and if if they do, I am less sanguine about the idea that the Republicans may come to Democrats looking for votes. Uh, if they do, uh, this is the absolute hard line that I would hold, which is, does this increase access and does it lower costs? Yep. Because if it doesn't increase access, if it doesn't keep everyone who already has access on their health on health insurance, if it doesn't lower their costs, and if it doesn't make it more available and, and affordable to more people, we're not interested. And and I this is why I am not sanguine that this will happen because any bill that does that is going to run contrary to enough of the Republican caucus that it won't be able to get through. Yep. Yep. All right. So those are three things we're not talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, for almost, it was really great for, not talking almost, about them. I enjoyed half, all that for almost a half hour now. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. So I want to play a quick game of 20 questions. And the idea of doing this is because, um, as we've discussed many times, Democrats uh, don't really have a policy platform. They don't really have a message. There's still a lot of disagreement as to why Hillary Clinton lost. Uh, There's more disagreement as to why Democrats lost so many um, seats during the administration, during the Obama administration. There's a lot of questions about how much resistance that we should be playing against uh, with Trump, uh, delegitimizing him and such. Should we be pushing for impeachment? Should we not be pushing for impeachment? So I want to just run through 20 questions um, that we have sort of discussed um, to talk about that will at least set the ground rules of what is fact and what is fiction. Um, and you can answer only one of three ways, Frank. You can say yes, no, or I don't know. No pontification whatsoever. So you can't. You will never stop me from pontificating. I'm just. Gonna, you will take my pontification for my my cold dead uh, 
mouth. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. All right. So question number one, is Donald Trump the legitimate president of these states united? Yes. Did Donald Trump win the Electoral College? He did. Is the Electoral College the actual voting body that determines who the president is? It is. Did Hillary Clinton lose the 2016 race for president? Yes. Was Donald Trump's campaign aided in some way by a cyber war waged against the United States by Russia? It was. Was Donald Trump's campaign aided in some way by James Comey's letter the week before Election Day? Yes. Did Hillary Clinton run a flawed campaign? She did. Did Hillary Clinton's campaign ignore large swaths of the public, banking on upping turnout of specific groups? Yes. Does Donald Trump lie? Yes. Are 99% of the things the Trump administration does, quote, not normal? Correct. They are. Does, does that matter? It does in... You're pontificating. No, no, hang on. It, it, do, it does in the it does in the broad swath of it does in the broad swath of what of how democracy functions in the immediate political reality. It does not. Yeah. Was Donald Trump's firing of James Comey obstruction of justice? Yes. Okay, I would have, I would have taken I don't know on that. Will as would will any solely democratic efforts result in the impeachment of Donald Trump? In the short term, no. And likely in the long term, though. Will the 115th Congress move to impeach Donald Trump? No. Is Bernie Sanders a member of the Democratic Party? Technically, no. I'd, uh, party identity is extremely fluid. I would like to see Bernie Sanders uh, register as a Democrat, but I am running out of time with the argument that Bernie Sanders is not able to comment on the future of the party because he's not technically a registered Democrat. He has clearly tossed his identity in with that party. All right, I'll give you that bit of pontification. Is Obamacare now safe from repeal? For the moment, yes. Will there be tax reform? No. Are Democrats across the country distracted and unorganized or disorganized? I don't know which word which word's right. Well, we are Democrats. Okay. I'm going to take that as a yes. Does the Democratic Party have a message? No. Does the Democratic Party have a purpose? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, so this was just a quick game of trying to set some facts on the ground because I'm Frank and I are both pretty certain that if we went to any number of Democrats, uh, there would be many of those answers that are clearly, uh, yet, you know, binary where we would get a false answer from people, um, which is incredibly infuriating. Yes. And, and one of them, there was a, you asked a question that was essentially a, a prognostication, which is, will there be tax reform? I would. My guess is no, but that's that's one I can't help but but prognosticate right. on. Not in the short term, um, but I do think there. I I would not surprise me if the Republicans have enough in common, even within their own caucus, to ram that to ram something through. Yeah, um, I mean, I think you know, as to quote Donald Trump, no one realizes how complicated healthcare could be. I don't think anybody realizes how complex and difficult tax reform is. Tax reform is unbelievably difficult. So I'm banking on on them not being able to organize a piss up in a brewery. It would not actually surprise me all that much if there's enough commonality on taxes that they could run through something not as profound as they want it to be, but something truly shocking and horrifying. Yeah, my guess is that um, one thing that we will, I I have a feeling one thing that we will see is there will be a drastic cut in the corporate tax. Yes, I think that's a, that that would be, that's a very reasonable projection. Which is not a bad thing per se. It's a a bad thing in the sense that you're, that you're losing revenue. Yeah, Um, it's not, terrible in the broader context of kind of America's 
competitive position in the world. Um, It is truly horrendous in the context of the fact that wealth is being aggregated in a very small number of places and our infrastructure, both in terms of service and literal infrastructure, is completely falling apart around us for lack of funding. Right. So if if tax cuts for corporations are somehow tied with repatriation, where we're actually bringing money back to this country, and by cutting taxes, we're we're increasing the investments into the country, uh, which overall, I mean, this this goes real close to the Laffer curve here. Um, but if if it can be pulled off, um, there's there, there could be something that even Democrats could jump in on there. It's possible, uh, but that has to be paired. The only way to do that responsibly is to pair it with a broader question of how do you do of how you take the money that is being aggregated, and this is both personal fortunes and corporate money that's being aggregated in a few companies that are basically now as wealthy as nation states, yeah, uh, and and big nation states. Uh, and 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 redistribute that to use the you know the R word, uh, redistribute that uh, in such a way that it's actually able to be put to use uh, for the the country to which those you know in which those corporations belong. Right. And that's yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of this also tax reform in general. Um, one of the reasons it's so difficult is you know when you get into pay fors and you get into balanced budgets. Um, if the Republican Party starts this process from the mentality that we are we don't care about running deficits that changes the ball game drastically. If they stick to this draconian for every cut you got to make a cut, then nothing's going to happen. Because yeah. Democrats aren't going to stand by when you know trillions of dollars of tax tax uh, tax money disappears overnight, and the Republicans just expect to starve government. You know, what's what's uh, Grover Norquist's thing? Starve government to small enough that you can flush it down the toilet? Yeah, that you can drown it in the bathtub. But sure, that would be the modern, yeah. yeah. That would be the updated version of it. Yeah, well, I mean, he may shit in the bathtub. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, going back going back to one of the points we were, the, where we started with this 20-question thing, uh, one of the things that I saw that was interesting, there was a Washington Post ABC poll uh, earlier this month uh, showing that only 37% of respondents agreed with the statement that, quote, the Democratic Party stands for something, while 52% rallied to the belief that, quote, Democratic Party just stands against Trump. Um, and here's something that's particularly interesting. Among independent voters, it was even a bit worse, with only 32% agreeing that the party stood for something and 55% merely viewing it as a disloyal opposition. Um, and just to give people, again, we don't want to get stuck into too deep into numbers because we're not doing this with an accompanying, accompanying pie chart or anything. But 65 million people voted for Hillary Clinton, 62, 62, people million, 62 million people voted for Donald Trump. Um, and again, as we just did in our 20 questions, that doesn't change the fact that Donald Trump won this election. But 90 million people did not vote at all. And that's a much bigger, that's a huge chunk of the population. And if the Democratic, Democratic Party wants to win, they got to focus more on getting that 90 million as opposed to trying to sway the 62 million. Yes, that's right. And this is this is the real challenge for I mean, you know, this is the and and we're not the only people who are talking about this. This is the real challenge for the party. And we've you know, and I think if you were to talk to any of the various great and the good who have been entrusted with doing this stuff for the party, they would they would largely agree, I would hope uh, that you're not going to motivate people 
by running against Trump, there has there has to be something positive for them to vote for. I mean, they'll look, there will be a bunch of voters who will come out because they're so horrified by what Trump has done and what he stands for that they will vote against it. Like there are there are such things as wave elections and midterms that are vote, mm-hmm. that where new voters turn up to vote against the incumbent president. Uh, that is not un, or very rare voters. That is not unknown. Uh, those have historically worked against Democrats rather than for them. Although 2006 was a very notable exception. Yep. Uh, but in those cases, but in, and in those cases, those were you know largely parties that were running against the sitting president. So this is this is the idea of simply running against Trump is not madness. Uh, there's a lot that he is doing that is turning people off. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it is going that is not the stuff of a long. Ter- it might be. It is possible that we might win back the House in 2018. Just possible. Uh, on the basis of that, but we will be in a better position to win back the House in 2018, and more importantly, to build on that victory if the party is able to advance a more positive agenda about what does this party actually stand for. And we're not talking about very specific and detailed policies. We're talking about some core principles uh, that under which you know policy will fit. Yeah, and you know to kind of continue this conversation um, in the direction that you and I laid out on our outline, which we very rarely pay attention to. Um, there were two articles that uh, we exchanged this week um, that we thought were of particular interest. Um, the first was uh, an article by Josh Barrow, who is uh, formerly a Republican. Um, he's now an independent writer. He writes for he writes for uh, Business Insider now. And there was another article in the New Republic about Chapo Chapo Trap House, which is a podcast that uh, Frank and I have mentioned in the past. Um, again, they're friends of the pod in that they don't know that we exist. Um, but this are these two articles in their own way, in a very uh, interesting way, sort of represented just how disparate and um, difficult the Democratic Party. Um, this, the straits that they are now facing. Um, Frank, if you want to kind of dive into the, the Chapo slash dirtbag left part of it, I can kind of talk about the Josh Barrow part of it. Sure. Sure. That's fair enough. So, I mean, very briefly, uh, you know, there was, there's been some kerfuffle for a while, uh, because, you know, the Chapo trap house guys, uh, and, and, and that is actually in this case, forgive me, a gender neutral term, uh, because one of the co-hosts, Amber Lee Frost is a woman. Um, but the, so the Chapo trap house team, I should say, uh, one of them, they're, they're, you know, referred to in the New Yorker by, as the dirtbag left, uh, you know, they're a little more hot. They are more overtly hostile in manner. Uh, to Republicans and also to center liberals, whom they refer to as neoliberals, uh, than just about anyone on the sort of popular on the left has been. They have a giantly successful podcast, Chapo Trap House is one of the most successful podcasts podcasts financially that's out there. Do you know why, Frank? Because um, people leave them reviews. People, that's exactly right. But it was entirely to do with the reviews that people left them. Uh, you know, stares daggers down his microphone, hoping that, that the audience feels, uh, you know, feel, you know, feels the intensity of it. Uh, so one of them, uh, one of the co-hosts, Will Menneker, uh, a couple of weeks ago, was talking about resuscitating the Democratic Party. Uh, they don't, I think, really see themselves as belonging to the party per se, uh, but certainly are interested in success. See it as a primary vehicle for agenda for uh, passing an agenda that they would be able to get behind, uh, but very critical of its of its of its existing infrastructure structure and personnel. Uh, and he said, you know, we're going to have, if we're going to do this, he said something like, if we're going to do this, uh, you know, the neoliberals need to come to the left. Uh, they need to bend the knee and we're going to go forward with a strong center with a strong uh, social democratic platform. There was a certain amount of, uh, I, I would say synthesized, uh, uh, outrage, 
over the term bend the knee. Uh, some people read some sexual stuff into it that they, uh, frankly, and, and I am sensitive to this stuff. I think it's, it is certainly easy, uh, particularly for white dudes who have podcasts to use expressions that are, uh, unpalatable and, and offensive. Uh, bend the knee is a term that George R. R. Martin uses constantly in, in Game of Thrones. Uh, it is it has been he didn't invent it. It's been around before. It refers to the very common medieval custom of someone bend and, and pre medieval the you know, custom of of kneeling before someone who is a power. It, and that's I it, to choose to interpret that as a, as as a as having sexual overtones is a choice that is designed to distract from the essential issue, which is, and this is a more important one, and this is the more relevant one for what we're about to talk about, which is um, that his suggestion was that for once the center left is going to have to go to the far left of the Democratic Party and acknowledge that they are the kind of moral and intellectual leaders of the party. I'm not entirely sure I agree with this. I, and and neither is uh, the New Republic's Jude here, who published a very long piece about how this was this showed a that what what Menneker, what Menneker said is reflective of a desire for on the part of the far left uh, for dominance politics uh, to, for the left to dominate the center left uh, and it being like what Donald Trump did to the Republican Party and how this is wrong that in point of fact the ability to build a coalition is really that to build a coalition uh, we need to be the left needs to be respectful of each other and not and and not trying to not contemptuous and not trying to assume a position of dominance. That's the essential position that he took. This, and I, and I want to bring this up because I want to just briefly talk about why this is relevant. This it, this fight between the the far left and the center left is extremely relevant. Uh, there, it is. It continues to play out on a more or less daily basis online and elsewhere. The wounds from the 2016 primary clearly have not healed, uh, and it goes back to a deeper problem that the left has, which is: uh, Can we defend? Should we be defending um, the legislative legacy and the administrative legacy of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, uh, who both of whom won a combined 16 years in government between them? Uh, or you know, should we be? Uh, in how should how should we feel about that period? Should we talk about it with pride? Should we talk about it uh, as something that we should have to apologize for? Because a lot on the far left see some see those is not particularly distinguished periods in the in the left's history. Uh, how we deal with that is really important. And I tell you this from personal experience because I've seen how the left in Britain has struggled to figure out how to talk about the new labor years. And their inability to figure and the inability of, of the left and the right to uh, within the within the Labour Party to figure out a kind of common story for what the Blair and Brown years meant for labor has, in my view, really hamstrung them and has is a significant contributing factor both to Brexit uh, and to uh, you know the now seven years of conservative rule. Obviously, they did they did a little bit better uh, last uh, last month in the uh, snap election than they expected to, but they still have a lot of, a long way to go to form a government again. If we fall into the same trap of debating for years, and this could happen, of debating for years. Uh, whether or you know how you know who who is the real who is real labor in terms of contempt and disdain uh, we will not be able to we will not be able to generate enough momentum to form a, to form a government that does anything worth a damn and if you want to see what happens when a party divided against itself tries to do something big just look at what happened to the Republicans on health care so in that sense I have some time for Jeet's argument that contempt does not make a coalition I do note that he has discovered a an aversion to contempt 
uh, immediately and only as soon as it was the center, centrist uh, Democrats who were being treated with contempt and disdain. Uh, and for, for what it's worth on my part, although I have some political differences with him, my view of this is that Will Miniker, when he said that, was just blowing off steam. Uh, it, it seems more likely to me than just about anything, although no doubt he would like for that to be the case. Uh, it is it in point of fact the center of the the center of the Democratic Party has treated the left with something near contempt for quite some time. Uh, the assumption that they because they are the base, the assumption that they will just vote with us because they have to, uh, because they don't have any other choice. Uh, that although their ideas are you know are crazy and absurd and you know and not and and not possible, uh, that they have nowhere else to go and therefore they will vote with us. And that eventually has eroded their enthusiasm. And I can't shake the feeling that both our legislative agenda and the and the the poetry in which we campaign, so the prose in which we govern and the poetry in which we campaign wouldn't have been a little bit better for our for our electoral fortunes and for our souls if we had treated them with a little, a little less contempt and a little more interest and respect. Uh, and so in that case, and so in that sense, I think there is a not just a hypocrisy, but a cowardice to the idea that Chapo and what the people they represent are the villains here. Uh, and and I would sort of and and I would call upon the left to clean our just the center of the of the left. And I I would say I'm probably closer to that than I am to the Chapo guys. Uh, you know, I would call upon us to clean our own house before we call upon other people to clean theirs. Yeah, it's all a very fair critique. And you know, we're trying to keep this uh, this part of the conversation a little. Uh, um, Shorter, which maybe we should have budgeted better up front. But uh, you know, one of so there was this article about the the Chapo guys. Uh, there was another article by Jonathan Chait, um, who's somebody you probably that'll probably be the only time you'll ever hear us mention him on this podcast, uh, talking about neoliberalism and is it a bad word and how is it misinterpreted and what does it represent? Can we use it anymore? And there was this other article by uh, Josh Bauer, who I mentioned up front. This article he creates this hypothesis about the uh, the hamburger theory. Um, in which he says that you can't win. He basically says there's a guy who gets home from work, wants to have a hamburger, kick up on his TV, watch a, watch the Redskins play, and have a beer. And he doesn't want anybody lecturing him about where the meat's from, that the Redskins is a pejorative term, um, that he shouldn't be drinking beer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Barrow spends a lot of time building up this example that there is a lot of um, motherism, nanny statism, um, uh, people talking down to other people in the Democratic Party, in certain, in certain parts of the Democratic Party. And he's not wrong. Um, I think it's more illustrative than prescriptive of the entire group. Um, but having been in a strategy session just a few months ago and, uh, called a and personally called a troglodyte by some very uh, well-educated, very well-meaning people who are trying to figure out how to become politically active, uh, because of an a, hyp a hypothetical I drew up, Similar in what Barrow was doing, I was a little bit more um, intense in some of the things that I was saying. Um, the point Barrow is making, and one that uh, one of the points that Barrow makes, and one thing that I, I fully do get behind is, you can disagree with someone, you can say that they are wrong, and they still might vote for you. You can disagree with somebody, but when you tell them that they're evil because of what they think, they will never vote for you again. And that is a problem that I think the Democratic Party in certain parts, um, and this is where you run into this idea of like, you know, oh, you're just talking about the way that the Democratic Party and the left is portrayed by Fox News. Well, yes, because there are people that watch Fox News who don't necessarily, who aren't necessarily Republicans, but they watch Fox News because that's what all their neighbors do. They don't necessarily agree with it, but when they are 
presented with that these other people are saying that you're evil because you want to take their guns away or evil because um, uh, you may use a, uh, um, a negative term for your friend who is a homosexual or uh, you may uh, uh, not eat farm fresh eggs or something or you don't comp- you don't you know don't compost your waste that's uh, a big problem and the Democratic Party, and this is something that where I push back on the Chapo guys very, very heavily, uh, insulting or nannying and, um, I mean, insults don't have to just be, ta- you know, calling somebody, you know, stupid and ugly. It can also just be uh, insulting them uh, to their core, which is much worse. You know, you tell somebody that they're stupid and ugly, that's one thing. You tell somebody that they're an evil person, that's much different. Yeah, there's. I, I will say this about the about the borrow piece. Uh, I, I didn't think much of it. It may not surprise the list, our listeners to hear that. Um, I I felt like his the 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 sort of nut graph of the whole thing uh, on you know the, the you know the guy who just wants to have a hamburger and well you know watch a football game and then you know liberals will come out of the woodwork and tell him that he's what he's doing is wrong uh, is an invention of his own largely uh, that that sim- that that phenomenon simply does not happen. I think borrow assumes. That borrow in order for this to be true, borrow would assume that everyone in America is on Twitter at all at all times, a place where any action or statement can be deconstructed, uh, and where there's probably someone out there who, with justification or without, will take exception to it and chastise you for it. Uh, most Americans are not on Twitter, and they are certainly not on not on it all the time. A lesson that a lot of us, including me, could uh, take uh, could could learn from. Uh, and more broadly, I will also say this about. It wasn't so much. It, part of it was about the meat, and part of it was about all the you know, the, you know, is your beef sustainably raised, and all this other stuff, right? But like what Barrow was doing was actually, I think, a fairly coded appeal to move away from a politics that talks about the interests of politically, uh, you know, of politically alienated or politically marginalized groups. Uh, the transgender bathroom thing being the the best example of that. Uh, I, I will just my general principle is. When someone is taking a position that uh, the people who need to change their behavior, the people who need to stop talking about what they're talking about, the people who need to go away and rethink their plan or whatever, just stop doing what they're doing. When when those pe- when you know when the position is the people who need to change what they're doing are women or people of color or people from politically marginalized communities and and they need to stop getting in the faces of white dudes uh my general position is check your math because there is something wrong there that is not the conclusion that you should be reaching i think where borrows are so in that sense i I don't have much time for this piece at all where borrow does have a point and i think ellie this is what you and i where what you were getting at i think where where we're on the same page is he is not, I think, explicitly calling for the Democratic Party to stop representing and talking about the needs and political interests of politically marginalized communities. Uh, if if he is, he is not. He is morally in the wrong as well as intellectually. But when that is something that we do, it's something that's part of our party. We should not stop doing that. We have to do that. That's mm-hmm. part of who we are. When we do not have any other message to take to other communities, like the Rust Belt voters that we lost in 2016. When we don't have a coherent message about where we stand, about where we about where we've been as a party, where we've been as a country, how we account for the last few years, all the stuff that all the stuff that we were just talking about that I was just ranting about, when we don't have a good message about what it is to be an American and how it is to what it, how you know how to succeed in America and where the Democratic Party is on that, then all those voters here is the disparate set of messages about the needs and interests of politically marginalized communities with whom they the those the voters that we're talking about here don't share anything in common. 
And it right. looks like we are running counter to their interests when, in fact, we're not. We're running complementary with their interests, right. but we're not bringing anything to them. Right. And and so in that, in that sense, we can look like something that we are not, like a party that is only out for the interests of a narrow set of politically marginalized groups. When we are certainly interested, we are certainly out for that, but it is under a broader umbrella of something that is that applies to everyone. Uh, and and we need to be honest enough to admit that to that extent uh, he has a point. Uh, but but if his position is we need to stop talking about the interests of those groups in the interests of you know winning back the white working class of the Rust Belt, I don't think that's necessary because you said at the at the top of your remarks, I think you're absolutely right about this. Uh, you know, voters can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, they are, you know, you know, the, you know, the voters that we're talking about, the ones that lived in the state, the ones that live in the states and voted Trump. Uh, right. Again, going back election. to how we define uh, on this show uh, our definition for white working class. Again, it's neither white nor working class necessarily, but in general, it is a cultural description, not an economic description. And the way exactly. to think about it is, it's a fear of cultural displacement. And sure. to me, that's what Barrow's article, that's what he was really talking about, is how do you talk to that group of people while not alienating? See, I'm looking at it maybe a little bit more forgivingly than you are, while not alienating your base, but still being able to talk to that group of people who are distinctly worried about the displacement coming from the, the far left. Sure. And the, uh, the, the point is, that's right. And, uh, and, the, well, and those the voters... The point is the party has to figure yeah. out how to chew gum. The party has to figure it out because those voters... Time. Exactly. Those voters will vote for you while you are pursuing an agenda that aggressively advances the interests of politically marginalized groups if you also do something that, that appeals to them. If, on the other hand, that seems to be all you're talking about, then it looks like you, it looks like you are just completely other from, from them, those voters that we're talking about. Right. And so, right, and right yeah. now, um, and through much of Hillary's campaign, um, what most voters were seeing, and again, this, doesn't, this isn't necessarily um, descriptive of how she was running, but what people saw was that there were the um, this identity politics group, and then there was the anti-Trump. And those were the two twin pillars of Hillary's campaign. And there was nothing for that, again, how we define white working class in the middle. Exactly. And that to a certain degree, and, and, here, I, and here I end on this thing, because I think that was, a, that was a really good point. I just want to highlight something you said that was absolutely right. To a certain degree, that wasn't it wasn't even the fault of how that campaign was run, because how right. how Hillary Clinton campaigned, how the campaign was run. There's a myth that like we didn't have an economic message. We didn't talk about the economy. We did. We talked about the economy a lot. The way we talked about it, the message that we pushed, it clearly didn't sink in. Yep. Certainly didn't have anywhere near the potency of the one that Trump was pushing. We've got to fix that, because if we can get that right, then you can reassess. Because the Obama coalition was not just women and communities of uh, women and communities of color and college educated folks. It was them plus enough of those. Rust Belt white working class voters to pull together a majority. That's actually what the Obama majority was, uh, and you know we need and those people in order to recreate that majority, if that's what we're going for, need to be won back. And it doesn't involve selling our souls. Yeah. All right. Well, this is something obviously we will talk a lot about again in the future because we've been talking about it for a few weeks. Uh, we'll post both articles on our Twitter feed, um, and. Uh All right, and now we are joined uh, by a fellow Truman member and our very good friend, Matt Strabone. Uh, Matt is running for San Diego County Assessor, uh, Recorder, and Clerk. That is one office. He is not spread betting. Uh, in his working life, uh, he's a nonprofit and ethics attorney uh, who provides legal advice to charities, to nonprofits, to, and to public officials. Uh, he's a longtime outspoken advocate for campaign finance reform, whose work in that field has appeared in print and on the airwaves in a variety of national and local outlets. Uh, Matt Strabone, welcome to Taking Ship. Thank you for joining us. 
Thanks so much for having me. I uh, appreciate the invitation. And I just want to say I really appreciate what you guys have done here. I don't actually know what it is because I haven't listened to a podcast yet, but I appreciate that you're doing it. So thank you. Thank, you know, that, that vote of confidence is all that uh, is all that we could have asked for. And if you do start look at listening to it, we'll send you a listener number four shirt. Uh, so <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, the San Diego County Assessor, Recorder, and Clerk. Uh, what does this combined office do? Yeah, that is often the first question I get. Uh, it's three roles, as the name indicates. Uh, has three primary jobs. It decides how much property tax folks have to pay. Uh, it stores all the public land records in San Diego County, and it issues marriage licenses and birth and death certificates. Um, but what I try to explain to folks is that the real purpose is to uh, support you if you're a resident of San Diego County and some of the most important moments of a person's life, whether you're getting married, having children, or buying a home. And um, it doesn't immediately seem apparent that it's an important office, but it turns out to be quite significant. And, and one place that every, one organ of government that everyone interacts with at some point. And what motivated you to run for this particular office? Well, frankly, I think I could do a better job than the incumbent. Uh, he's done a particularly poor job uh, over the years, and I work with a lot of county clerk offices across the country. And I know firsthand what a good office looks like. I know that what we have in San Diego County isn't one, uh, and it's not because of anything being done at the civil service level. I've, those people I've interacted with have been great. It's just there's been a lack of innovation, a lack of kind of a desire to focus on customer service uh, amongst the leadership there. Uh, and frankly, the incumbent has tried to insert some of his own political views into the office. And that's not what the office is supposed to be for. It's not a policymaking office. It's just kind of supposed to be a functionary that ensures uh, smooth transactions. So can you give an example of uh, what a well-run uh, office should do versus how the office is being run now? I think it's sort of something that we can kind of latch onto as a sense, because you're right. I mean, this is an office that is, you know, there for people who are at their most important parts of their life. You know, what happens when that goes right versus what happens when that goes wrong? All right. So uh, one thing that really bugs me is that there are a host of documents held by that office that are public. And as we can all agree, public records should be made accessible to the public fairly easily. That is the nature of public records. They belong to the public. But there are certain records held by this office that the that the current guy charges $2 per page to access. And not only that, he makes you physically come to his office to print them out. At the very least, and these are not sensitive documents. These are public land records that anybody should be able to access. At the very least, I would make unregistered copies of these available online for free, which is not done now. You can't access them online. And the printed cost would be at cost, maybe 10 cents a page, not $2 a page. If you're wanting to get involved in your local government and understand how things work and you want to pull a lot of uh, public records to understand things better or you're an advocacy organization and you have to pull a number of permits to make sure everything all of the appropriate uh, guidelines are being followed in terms of development this can get very expensive very quickly uh, because it's, again it's not one dollar two two dollars per document it's two dollars per page uh, which just seems like a backdoor regressive tax on everybody who wants to know what's going on in san diego county frankly Sure. And, you know, I think some of our friends uh, within the Truman community and, and without who have been with the State Department or have been around uh, entities that are concerned with building democracies worldwide, like this kind of stuff is what you look at to assess the health of a democracy at the local level, right? Like, can you get paper? Can you get information that is that should be publicly available at a reasonable price? Is it actually publicly available or not? Indeed. And effectively, with this kind of at this price point, it really isn't, is it? Right. And I think the national, the federal climate certainly 
uh, speaks to our broader concern with access to documents, access to information that ought to be a matter of public record. Uh, the fact that something like this is going on at the local level is what motivated me to take a more active role in trying to fix things and actually replace the guy who's responsible for this. So let's talk about that campaign a little bit. What has your campaign been? How, how long have you been running for this office and what has the campaign been like? I, I announced in early April, so it's been you know just a few months now and we have 11 more to go because my election will be determined in June of 2018 rather than November, uh, which presents its own challenges. But, uh, you know, to kind of explain the scope of the election, San Diego County, and I'm running countywide, so it's the entire county I'm running for, has three and a half million people and covers 4,200 square miles. It is, uh, it encompasses five entire congressional districts and the, uh, the office is not terribly high profile. So, you can imagine the difficulty in getting enough people, kind of creating critical mass around interest and uh, awareness of the office in the first place, let alone deciding who folks should vote for. So it's been interesting. I, you know, inevitably I'm going to have to, there's going to be a paid outreach component that hopefully I can talk to a lot of people. But nonetheless, while I may not be able to knock on every door, I do try to get to as many community meetings as possible and meet as many people as I can. Uh, and that's what it's looked like uh, for the most part. I've been happy to get a lot of endorsements. Just two nights ago, I got the endorsement of the San Diego County Democratic Party, which I expect to be very helpful as I prosecute this race. Um, so kind of linking up with as many validators as possible uh, to, to, for those folks I'm not going to be able to get to personally. Uh, that's that's kind of been the, the, the broader strategy so far. Is this a partisan primary, or is it a is it a nonpartisan uh, election? So in California, first of all, there I'll, I'll say two different things. In California, we have open primaries generally. Uh, so the top two, generally the top two uh, candidates will go through to November regardless of party. So it could be two Democrats, it could be two Republicans, it could be one of each, it could be neither. But uh, in San Diego County elections. If one candidate garners more than 50% of the vote in the primary election, which again is open, that candidate wins outright. And because there appears to be just two of us, myself and the incumbent in this race, one of us will inevitably get more than 50%, meaning that our election will be ended and determined in the primary, which will be in June. Got it. So this is, I mean, a, a, the uh, the party endorsement is an important thing anyway, but it's especially important in a context like this. Well, congratulations. That's excellent. Thank uh, you. Do, do you have any uh, thoughts, advice, comments for any of our listeners who are considering a run for local office? Yeah, I would say talk to everyone you can. Never turn down an invitation to speak in front of a group uh, because you learn a lot not only about the people you're trying to connect with, but also about yourself. Uh, and when you're running for something as local as this, the extent to which people will be candid with you is remarkable. I'll give you a quick example. So I've been crisscrossing the county, uh, giving my stump speech to a number of community groups, and, and I recently received some very, very particular feedback. Afterwards, someone told me that I sound like a 1950s baseball radio broadcaster in New York, and, and that's a very specific sort of criticism. I was wondering, and, and, and in a very accurate, in a very accurate comment, if I may say. Well, uh, you know, I was wondering if maybe I could give the first 15 seconds or so of the stump speech right here, and you guys can tell me what what do you think needs improvement, if that's all right. Please do. Yeah. So, so this is how I started. <clears throat> I say hi, my name is Matt Strabone, and I'm running for San Diego County Assessor, Recorder, and Clerking. Good afternoon from Ebbets Field, where Roy Campanella and the Dodgers take on Stan Musial and the Cardinals. But first, a word from our sponsor, Winfield Cigarettes. Four out of five doctors agree, Winfields are the best choice. That's Winfield Cigarettes, smooth. So what do you think? How can I improve on that? That's the best stump speech I've ever heard, bar none. 
Right. So I, I were I the think Dodgers at Ebbets Field? I thought that was the Giants. No, man, the Dodgers are at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. Come on. All right. Well, I just live in New York. I don't know. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> the Giants, the Giants played at the, uh, the Giants Polo, grounds. At Polo Grounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Matt, let me Hello ask you. And welcome to three guys talking about old baseball teams. <laughs> yeah, that's us. That's us. Um, Matt, I know that there's all kinds of weird property tax rules and laws and um, uh, ballot initiatives in California. Can you explain some of those and then how that impacts what you can or can't do? Um, in the position that you're seeking? Yeah, so Proposition 13 is the big one that uh, has impacted California since its passage in the 70s. Uh, Proposition 13, just to give a quick overview, limits the amount that a municipality or the state can raise a homeowner's property tax to no more than 2% per year. Uh, The assessor's job is to assess the value of the property for property tax purposes. Uh, But the amount of property tax you pay is not going to go up more than 2% from the prior year. So what you end up having, and often doesn't go up as much. Long story short, if you've owned your home for a long time, you pay significantly less than folks who have purchased their home uh, more recently, because that's when the the determination starts to toll. It, It starts the moment you purchased your home. So someone who purchased it in 1979, right after Prop 13 was passed, is paying an impossibly low property tax rate, whereas someone who purchases a home in 2017 is paying a much higher rate. Uh, regrettably, this, and, and I mean, Prop 13 was originally intended to protect homeowners, and, and it does that, but regrettably, it also uh, it also pertains to commercial properties as well. So Disneyland, let's say, and every property owned by Disney in California, uh, that's been in, that's held by the same ownership since 1978, and so they're paying a much lower uh, rate of property tax than newer businesses in the state, and I think that's that's harmful. I I don't think uh, folks would be terribly happy about removing Prop 13 entirely because no one wants to see a shock to their property tax, and that makes sense if you're uh, you know if you're a homeowner, if if you're a senior citizen who who's on a fixed income, things like that. Uh, but I think we we could make some improvements around commercial properties certainly. Uh, and, 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 and more broadly than that, I think the, the loss of, of revenue from Proposition 13 has been directly correlated to the, the loss of funding for California public schools, for our infrastructure here, our roads are generally a mess, things like that. Um, it's, 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 it's a thorny issue. It sounds like it. Uh, on the subject of uh, of money uh, and 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 big money and how it's how it's uh, distributed, let's talk a little bit, uh, if we may, about dark money. Uh, this is something that you have uh, you've talked a lot about on Twitter and you've written about it in other and you've written about it in a number of uh, places. You've been on uh, TV talking about dark money. Uh, you know, so what is dark money and how can we get a very great deal of it immediately? <laughs> uh, I will refuse to answer that last part. Well, let's start by talking about what dark money isn't. I usually find that that's, that's a helpful starting point. So the way an election ideally will work in terms of campaign contributions is, uh, let's take my campaign, for example. Someone will give me a contribution, like you have, Frank, and thank you for being a supporter of the campaign. Uh, you will give me a contribution, and I will report it on a quarterly or semi-annually or whatever the, the, determination, the determination is uh, basis. And I'll say, Frank Spring gave me X amount of dollars to my campaign on this date. And that's a matter of public record. And that's good because this is a democracy and we should know where campaigns are being funded. Uh, Dark money is essentially anything that obscures that relationship. So 
for instance, there are states, not federal, mind you, but there are states where uh, candidates can take money from a corporation or from a nonprofit. And so on the nonprofit side, particularly, you have a 501c4 or a 501c6. Uh, 501c4 is a social welfare organization or 501c6 is a kind of a professional uh, membership organization like a chamber of commerce. They're, they are allowed to take donations in unlimited amounts and they don't have to disclose by and large where those donations come from. And then that organization can then make a contribution to a candidate. The candidate will then only disclose that the, that the umbrella organization gave them money and not where that umbrella organization got the money from. This becomes even more insidious when we talk about outside expenditures, independent expenditures. Super PACs are a popular vehicle for this. When super PACs work with dark dark money, it's particularly dangerous because super PACs are able to accept unlimited amounts of money and spend unlimited amounts of money on elections. Uh, so let's say Frank started a super PAC called the Frank Spring Super PAC, and uh, someone wanted to give a billion dollars to Frank Spring Super PAC. To hide where that billion dollars comes from, they could easily start an LLC in Delaware, for instance, where you could do that in a matter of seconds for like $49. Dump a billion dollars into the LLC. Let's call it Acme, uh, and then Acme gives a billion dollars to Frank Superpack. When Frank Superpack reports where the money comes from, it just says we got a billion dollars from this place called Acme LLC. And then the FEC and all the regulators can't reach back into Acme's records and say where did Acme get the billion dollars from. It just ends there. You can understand the potential for abuse uh, when, let's say, you have someone who is infamous and uh, a campaign or a candidate wouldn't want to be associated with that person, they're able to get involved secretly through dark money. Much worse than that and more timely to the current environment, I'd say, and this is something I talked about last summer before it became an issue and I regret no one listened to me, uh, a federal, a foreign government, a foreign national, a foreign power could fund, could create a Delaware LLC. The state of Delaware would have no record that the foreign government is behind it. So Vladimir Putin, let's say, wanted to start his own Acme Corporation. He could do that in Delaware. He could put a billion dollars in Acme, and then he could spend a billion dollars through Acme on Donald Trump's campaign, his election effort, his re-election effort. And we would have no way of knowing that it was Vladimir Putin behind that money. Now, this is technically illegal because foreign nationals are not allowed to spend money on our campaigns. But, regrettably, because of loopholes in the law... It's very easy for them to do, and we have evidence that it's actually happened. Uh, one example that we've discovered, back in 2015, when it still seemed like Jeb Bush was going to be the Republican nominee, there were two Chinese nationals based in Singapore who used an American corporation they owned to give $1 million to Jeb Bush's super PAC right to rise. This was only discovered <laughs> oh, because... Uh, <laughs> that was a good bet. That was a great yeah, bet, yeah. guys. Congratulations. Obviously fantastic. Ride that so, horse as far as it'll take you. Sorry. <laughs> No worries. That was only discovered because uh, they did it through a corporation that had to disclose its board of directors, and they sat on the board of directors, and then some some uh, investigative reporters reached out and said, where did this money come from? And then they foolishly said it came from us. Uh, but you know, had they not messed those steps up, frankly, no one would ever have known they had, the money had come from two Chinese nationals, which sucks. And we, we didn't know this about this until after Jeb had dropped out. So you know, nothing ever came of it. This is a golden era for people publicly admitting to having violated various elements of campaign law. Indeed. Just, I mean, you know, is there, you know, it just, which I actually have to say, I really like it. Did you, you know, did you, did you, uh, did you commit this infraction? Yes, we certainly did. And more. Right. I, I think it's symptomatic of the FEC not uh, having any teeth anymore because of the constant three to three partisan deadlock at their board. Um, one can admit to a lot of wrongdoing when it comes to our federal election law and the FEC will just sit on its hands and say, yeah, fine, whatever. We're just not going to do anything. Uh, it's, it's unfortunately quite the time to be alive, uh, not in a good way.
Is there now? Is there not now a legislative uh, push uh, afoot to do away with the FEC entirely? And yes. Just to, to, to just to pretend that we no longer, or just to actually do away with the pretense that we care about how people conduct themselves in in the uh, in our democratic system. I mean, there have been actually a number of leading Republicans in Congress who have said, "Why don't we?" dispense with the idea that there are going to be any contribution caps, any expenditure caps. You know, if someone wants to raise unlimited amounts of money from one person, you know, if, you know, Sheldon Adelson wants to give someone $5 million, he should be able to do that directly and not have to go through a super PAC or not have to use dark money. Uh, and, you know, you, you kind of see the appeal, given how bad things are now, that at least they would have to be disclosed. Like if everyone just agrees to disclose and then have unlimited money come into the system. But I would argue that that uh, such practice would go a long way towards corrupting our democracy even further and and kind of softening the voice of the average person yet further amidst the crashing wave of, of shameless unlimited money coming into our system. Uh, I think we have erred for a very long time in how we've looked at this. This goes back to the Buckley versus Vallejo case in the 70s and I think was brought to bear in the End Citizens United case and the cases that came after that more recently. But there's this idea that money is speech that's what we keep hearing uh, in our jurisprudence and from defenders of the current system. Well, money is speech. I would say that money is not speech and has never been speech. I would say money is conduct. And conduct, unlike speech, can very much be regulated. Just to give kind of two non-political examples, you know, you're not allowed to um, invest money in a company owned by the North Korean government. That, that's illegal. That's that's conduct. Using your money, that's conduct that's being regulated. That's not speech. Like you, And the same thing, you can't invest in companies that are fronted by the Iranian government. Again, conduct being regulated. It's not speech. The idea that money is speech, I think, is obviously false and has been kind of propped up as a nonsense argument to allow all this uh, unfettered money to come into our system, and it needs to be changed. Uh, it, I think if we ever get the composition of the Supreme Court changed, we could get back to a point where it is regulated, but we're far away from that right now. And that's what it would take. It would take a it would take a, a Supreme Court decision on, on on the successor case to end Citizens United in order to undo this, or a constitutional amendment, which I think is even less likely. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm I'm, uh, I'm pushing. I'm, I'm putting all of my chips down on that one. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get all. We're gonna get what thirty states to vote for it, and and then what four fifths of something. I don't know something forty acres and a mule. Something I don't know. There's lots of numbers <laughs> in the Constitution that I just mix up in my head. But Matt, if you were drawing up that amendment, what would what would it be? I would uh, say that we have. Well, I mean, there, that, that's geez, how, how much time. How much time do we have, frankly? Uh, as much as you all, want. I mean, it can be obviously it doesn't have to be legalese, but just sort of what would be the core concepts that you would want enshrined? So the core concepts, first of all, no outside expenditures. Uh, the the paid outreach should have to come from the candidates, and there should be limits on the amounts candidates should be able to accept. They should only be able to accept contributions from American citizens, not from corporations, not from obviously foreign officials, which or foreign um, foreign citizens, which I think will continue to be illegal. Uh, so limited contributions from people. Uh, we could have. Frankly, public financing would be even better than that. I, I don't know what the appetite is for that in the American public, but if, in my ideal world, there would be no money coming into the system at all. Like, not candidates wouldn't even be able to, to accept money. They wouldn't be able to spend their own money. You'd have to reach a threshold uh, in terms of the number of signatures gathered in your district, and once you reach that threshold, you get a pot of money. Everyone gets the same amount of money to spend. You spend that within a certain delineated time frame, so they let you know the presidential election doesn't last two plus years like it has lately. Uh, you. 
So you you get a number of signatures that shows you're supporting the community. Those signatures are verified by the regulatory agency. Once you have those signatures, you get, let's say, for a local race, you know, $25,000. You spend that as you see fit within, you obviously can't pocket it, but you spend that on outreach as you see fit. Uh, and then you have the election and that's that. Uh, that's what I would like to see happen. Um, you know, obviously we're, we couldn't be farther away from a system like that. Uh, so it's gonna take a lot of steps to get there. But if it were up to me, I would have public financing of elections and I wouldn't have any outside expenditures. So in terms of public financing, I mean, I, I always check the box on my taxes to you know, donate $3 to the, you know, the, the, the fund or whatever it is. And I think it's a great idea for public financing. I think the thing that I get caught up on a lot is just there's such monumental price differences between, you know, a city council race in New York costs as much as a senatorial race in Montana. Right. And a presidential race, obviously. So, I mean, is there a formula that has to get come up with to, you know, so that not everybody's getting the same $25,000, but, you know, 25 grand in New York is going to get you basically to the end of the block, whereas in Wyoming it covers the whole state or whatever it might be? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of federal programs are chained to things like the consumer price index, cost of living. You know, we we do something similar there. Uh, You know, I'm not suggesting that local races should be handled the same as federal races and, and they can't be because local races are how those are funded are going to have to be up to the individual states uh the federal government can't tell states how to run their state and local elections frankly but for federal elections we can uh create some kind of formula that takes into account the expense of the media market and the consumer price index of, of the area and you know anything else you want to add that shouldn't be too problematic uh, we can do that for all 435 congressional districts, I think. I, I don't think that's uh, beyond the expertise of our federal government to figure out. So as the regular listeners to this show, of which you are uh, very probably not one, Matt, uh, will know, uh, Ellie and I are uh, the co-founders and public representatives of uh, uh, a Venal PAC, uh, which is a political action committee that supports corruption in all of its forms. Uh, so, you know, I will say that what you have said about this is, uh, as an American, I'm quite in favor of it. Uh, as a representative of Venal PAC, I have to tell you that what you said is hideous, uh, hasty, uh, horrifically ill-conceived, and frankly, you should be ashamed. Uh, and, and so on that condemnatory note, I would like to move to a different question, which is, what is a holiday bowl? <laughs> An excellent question. Uh, the holiday bowl is an important civic tradition in San Diego County. I know you are a big college football fan, Frank. Uh, college football ends its season with a series of bowls, some of which make no sense. I like to think the holiday bowl still makes some sense and has a much longer and prouder history than most. The, the national championship was actually earned at the holiday bowl one year by the one year BYU won the title back in the eighties. Uh, so the holiday bowl is a college bowl game that we have here in San Diego uh, at the end of every year, usually around December 29th or so. Uh, it features a team from the PAC 12 against the team from the big 10, although we are figuring if we're going to continue with both of those relationships. I can't say more than that right now. We just uh, changed our TV contract from ESPN to Fox. I'm saying all this. I should note to your listeners, I'm a member of the Holiday Bowl Committee, which is why I have this insight into the Holiday Bowl. Uh, but it's obviously a fantastic event. We routinely nearly sell out Qualcomm Stadium, although that is about to be demolished, so we'll be playing elsewhere uh, in the future. Uh, we, we sell a lot of tickets. We always have a lot of folks come to town. We have a lot of events around it. And I would say, other than the, the main bowls that happen on New Year's Day, and after the holiday bowl is the best bowl in america 
That sounds reasonable. Uh, it's, I mean, it's as you say, many of these bowls don't make sense. And I say this as a native New Mexican, which has the which has the proud tradition of the New Mexico Bowl. Indeed. Uh, which, I mean, honestly, like I'm not sure why it exists. I can, honestly, like I can't <laughs> begin to fathom it. But I mean, the Holiday Bowl seems to me to be a, seems to me to to belong to a particular set of uh, of bowls that really do deserve to exist. Which is, I mean, these are all exhibition games, right? With the exception of like. You know the playoff and the national champ, which again, like I mean, the national championship could get into the holiday bowl, but basically it's an exhibition game from a time when people would very rare wouldn't be able to get to see teams from outside their outside their region and outside their conference. Like you wouldn't have games outside of conference very often, and also one that is played in very nice weather, and so it gives everyone a chance to go and get warm for a little bit and see something unusual in college football, which I think sort of is where the holiday bowl still fits in. Uh, so I want you right now. Uh, to predict right now, without before a pass is thrown or a you know kickoff missed and or a field goal missed and returned ninety six yards for a touchdown, as I hope will happen again this year. Uh, <laughs> please, I, mean, I want you to predict right at this very second who's going to be in the Holiday Bowl. Uh, I'm going to go with. You see, you see, this is this is a double edged sword, right? Because I think it's I think it's a, an honor to be in the Holiday Bowl, but there are certain fan bases that might be disappointed to end up in the Holiday Bowl. I, I think. If those fans were to come to the Holiday Bowl, they'd think differently, but I think it's an honor. I'm going to go with uh, Utah out of the Pac-12, and out of the Big Ten, I'm going to say Iowa. So Utah-Iowa this year in the Holiday Bowl, that's the prediction. Those are very reasonable predictions, and I have to say, anyone who who anyone who grumbles about turning up to San Diego in late December for any reason is fooling themselves. Agreed. That is, A, one more bowl than I have ever been to as a participant, and B, you could do a lot worse. And on the subject of that most lovely of cities, let me ask you, is the fish taco San Diego's official civic, or not official, but is it the de facto civic dish? Uh, we have to be careful about what we designate as official foodstuffs here because there was sure. a little bit of a kerfuffle about around what is the, the tourism authority uh, named someone the uh, named a beer, the official beer of San Diego. And it wasn't clear what the process was and people were up in arms. Uh, so I will this say this is the, lack, the same lack of transparency that we're fighting in every step of government these days. You know, I, I, I hate to say it, but I did make that point on Twitter. I said, gosh, you know, this does seem strange where some private benefit accrued to a beer company and there's no, been no public disclosure of how this decision was reached. Not to get too into the weeds. But yes, uh, I would say the fish taco is something San Diego is absolutely known for and uh, you can do worse than Oscars in the neighborhood of Hillcrest. Uh, that, that's definitely a good choice. So next time you're out here, I'll take you there and many other places, right? I look forward to it. So, Matt, before we get into our, our lightning round, uh, being one of those fans of a team that is likely unhappy going to the Holiday Bowl after having grown up in South Bend, Indiana, I'm a diehard Notre Dame fan. Uh, so leaving that aside for a second, how did San Diego lose the Chargers? <laughs> uh, we've entered the third rail of San Diego politics. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> you, can, you can play it really easy. <laughs> no, I think... It seems to me that the ownership had its eye on moving to L.A. for quite some time, regardless of the, the public statements they made prior to their move. Um, you know, I, I think their ownership saw an opportunity to make more money in Los Angeles than in San Diego. I think they're going to learn that it, L.A. is a hard market to earn loyalty in because there's a lot going on there. And the Chargers had an incredibly loyal and active fan base, no matter how bad the team got. And they got pretty bad quite often. Uh, I think they'll come to regret that move, uh, but I think that that's the at the end of the day, the owners thought they could make more money in Los Angeles, so they pull up stakes and move. I think that's really the long and short of it. That is totally fine, Frank. Shall we move on to the lightning round? <clears throat> Absolutely. 
Uh, so we've got uh, with the short lightning round of questions, and we dive right in with uh, what is a, a a book, TV show, a movie, something you've read or seen lately that you would like to recommend to our listeners. Something I just finished watching two days ago. Uh, PBS had a great multi-part documentary called "The Story of China." It uh, goes through essentially the entire recorded history of China from thousands of years ago. It kind of shows how it's been uh, one unbroken string of civilization uh, for a very long time. I, as you know, Frank, I, I write about and talk about U.S.-China relations quite a bit in my spare time. I think that uh, one thing we can all agree on is that the U.S.-China relationship will go a long way towards kind of coloring the 21st century. And the more and the more of us in the United States who understand China and its motivations, its its general kind of uh, aims, uh, the better. And I and even though I, I've studied kind of Chinese history quite a bit so I can understand their relationship with with our country better. I learned a lot from this documentary. I would encourage anyone who's interested in American foreign policy to do the same uh, because you get a real sense of kind of the the civilizational mindset, uh, particularly in in the leadership in Beijing right now. Uh, So that would be what I would recommend. Can you say the name of that, uh, that documentary again? The story of China. The story PBS. of China. All right, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, what is uh, what is a favorite drink that you would recommend, alcoholic or not? Uh, I'm I'm a pretty simple guy. I like an Arnold Palmer, uh, which mm-hmm. is half iced tea, half lemonade. That's an excellent drink, uh, and more. Yeah, but one of the the great refreshing drinks of our era, I would say. Uh, so, in the speaking of eras, this one a little less pleasant. In the Trump era, uh, lots of people are interested in doing something uh, that's civically or politically active. What is an organization uh, that you are supporting, and why? Well, uh, I mean, the one I always like to say, regardless of what the climate is like, um, St. Jude's Children's Hospital is always a good choice. Uh, a number of reasons for for choosing them, uh, but I think every dollar that goes there is a dollar well donated. Uh, so that's what I'm going to go with. Excellent, excellent answer. Uh, and where can people follow you? Where can they they find you if they want to get a sense of how your campaign's going? If they want to hear various witticisms and also uh, very earnest and stern warnings about dark money, where can they find you? The best place to find me, if you don't live in San Diego, is on Twitter. Uh, I. Make a nuisance of myself on Twitter quite a bit. You can follow me at Matt Strabone. That's M-A-T-T-S-T-R-A-B-O-N-E. Find me on Twitter. It's a blast. Tweet something at me. I'll tweet you back. I can't guarantee it'll be interesting or nice, but at least it'll be – there'll at least be a GIF attached to it, and people like my GIFs, so – it's true. You you were one of the well, you were one of Twitter's better giffers, and that's really saying something. Thank you, Giffer. Yeah, I think so. All right, all right, fine. I think that works. Screw it. Let's go with it. Yeah. Excellent, Master Owen. Thank you for joining us. It's been great. Thanks, man. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. With that, um, please do subscribe um, on iTunes or whatever else you use. Follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P, as in Panzoism. So, with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? This week, we're headed to the beautiful island of Cyprus. We return to the beautiful island of Cyprus, the loveliest of many lovely island tax shelters, where the New York Times recently uncovered financial documents showing that former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort owed $17 million to various Russian and pro-Russian interests prior to becoming uh, Trump's campaign chair. This is troubling in itself, but as official representatives of Venal Pack, We are particularly concerned about this appalling security breach on the part of the relevant Cypriot financial entities. Listen, if you can't trust a shady tax haven, who can you trust these days, am I right? 
So uh, we're going over to Cyprus to ensure that, how shall I put this, that certain members of the chorus don't get it in their heads to sing any louder than they should. Uh, in fact, a smart person, a healthy person, might say that uh, silence is the most beautiful music of all. So we're going to spend some time uh, making sure that uh, those wise words uh, get to the audience that needs to hear them most on behalf of our good friends at Venal Pack. So friends, uh, with that message of uh, music criticism, uh, we take ship now for Cyprus. Take care, everybody.